1: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: It's Wednesday, August 25th. From The Recount and iHeartRadio, this is the News Items Podcast, which is loosely based on my newsletter, News Items. I'm John Ellis. Few companies have captured the imagination quite like Tesla. My guest today is the Wall Street Journal's Tim Higgins is the author of a new book entitled Power Play Tesla, Elon Musk, and the Bad of the Century. Higgins had been covering the automobile industry for years when the Great Recession hit. He left Detroit for Silicon Valley thinking that the industry's exciting days, from a reporter's perspective, were long gone. But Tesla would prove him wrong. Elon Musk, its chairman, was making risky moves to survive the recession borrowing funds personally to keep the struggling company afloat. Higgins' book is full of details about the roller coaster Tesla has written. He and I talked about that story, the central role played by Elon Musk, but also others, and whether Tesla can survive the competition in a sector that has done so much to define. Here we go. Tim, thank you very much for joining the podcast today. Pleasure to have you. Well,
1: thank you. It's an honor.
0: I think a large number of our listeners sort of know about Elon Musk as a crazy genius, but they don't really know. Can you walk our audience through where he came from and how he came to control Tesla?
1: Yeah, the the founding of Tesla is not a an easy story. It's not black or white. There's a lot of gray. The early co-founding CEO was a man named Martin Aberhart, who was really walloped by middle age, going through a divorce, uh, kind of unsure about what he wanted to do with his career. And of course, the perfect anecdote for something like that is a sports car. But he was also concerned about the environment. And he thought it would be really cool to get an electric sports car. And this put him on a path to trying to figure out how to bring an electric sports car to the world. With the kind of idea that if you started at the top, kind of the high end, and brought out this technology and show that it was possible that this could usher in perhaps a new era for electric vehicles, which had never really taken off in the U.S. At the same time, he needed to raise money for what he called Tesla Motors. And the auto industry is a cash-eating industry. It takes a lot of money and a lot of capital to just get to the place of competing. And the way Silicon Valley investors are kind of lined up is they have a shorter time horizon. They put the money in and they want to see some results pretty quickly. And the idea of a car company was really out there. But there was a man out there who was putting his fortune into wild ideas, and that was Elon Musk. He had made uh, his big fortune in PayPal and had come up with this idea that he wanted to make a commercial space rocket company. He believed humanity needed to be a multi-planet species. And so they went and pitched Elon Musk on the idea, and Elon was on board and became the largest investor and became the chairman.
0: And when did... The transition to Elon being the CEO, is, or what does he call himself? Techno King,
1: I guess. Techno King these days, (laughs) but CEO. And definitely the the story of Tesla throughout its history is really a story of a fight for control. The company was founded on a lot of hope and belief. And once they got into the hard brass tacks of things, building a car was a lot harder than they really anticipated. And all the assumptions were pretty much wrong. And after a few years, Uh, They were behind schedule, and things were costing way more than they expected. The company was on the ropes. The Great Recession happened in 2008, and Aberhart was pushed out at that point, and Elon really seized control and was able to recapitalize the company to get enough money to kind of keep it going. Right. Um, He was putting basically all of his fortune into SpaceX and Tesla. That's
0: sort of a pivotal moment there in 2009, where. I think you report that they're going under in three weeks or whatever. Tell us about that moment where the company was essentially rescued from bankruptcy.
1: Yeah, so this is one of the first instances of a near-death experience, and it was towards the end of 2008. It was really a pivotal period going into the fall, late summer. The company looked like maybe it was going to be able to pull things off. The Roadster was had started production. Uh, some of their early production snags were being figured out. People were optimistic inside the company. They had arranged to raise $100 million led by Goldman Sachs. They were going to be getting Chinese investors. And then Lehman Brothers collapsed and the, the financial markets uh, seized up. And all that money, it was they couldn't find any money. And this put the company under some great pressure. They were already some jittery folks out there, customers who'd put down deposits, wondering if they were going to lose their money. And so Elon was having to convince the customer base that the Roadster was real and was going to happen. And then he was also having to figure out ways to raise money and and push his investors to put in more money. And this is one of the key things we see with Elon Musk going forward is up until that point, he'd really been able to Put his own money into the company but he was basically out of money at that point Uh, he would borrow money to kind of entice the other investors to put in more money but at this point going forward he's really having to sell his vision of the company to investors and this becomes key because he has this talent and ability to sell the future to excite people in a way for them to buy into what he's doing and that we see that in, in the end of 2008. He pressures his investors to put more money into the company. He takes a loan out and does it. He matches it as well. And this gets them over the hump into 2009. And what I like to call Tesla 2.0 was born in 2009, when then they were able to raise more money through some pretty savvy moves. And that, and one of those moves is to start providing some components to electric cars to Daimler, the parent company of Mercedes Benz. Uh, They're able to borrow money from the U.S. government, which at the time was trying to inspire the auto industry to move towards electrification. So there was some pretty generous loans out there that they they were able to get. And they were able to push that vision of what was next to customers. So they brought out what would be the Model S. They showed it in 2009 and used that vehicle to bring in those investors, to bring in that loan money, to bring in customers putting down deposits and rode that enthusiasm to a public offering in 2010, which really set them up to kind of have the money they thought they were going to need to bring out the Model S to start production. And this was going to be, in Elon's mind, the world's best car that just happened to be electric. And and this really was a huge bet because it wasn't really clear that an average luxury car buyer would want an electric car.
0: One of the things that's great about your book is, you know, when people think of Tesla, so much of the credit is sort of assigned to Elon Musk, but actually there are others that are instrumental in the company's success. One is J.B. Straubel, who's sort of the battery wizard, and then Peter Rollinson, who was the chief engineer for the Model S. Tell us about each of those people and what their contributions were to Tesla.
1: I appreciate you hitting on that because this isn't the story of Elon Musk. And that was really kind of the goal of the book was to get beyond the myth status and get into, into these really important people to show the challenges they were facing. And let me start off by first also pointing out that one of the things that oftentimes is misunderstood about Elon Musk is he has this great ability to find talent, not just smart people, but people who buy into his vision for the world. So We'll start with J.B. Straubel. Here's a guy who graduates from Stanford who's super smart, very interested in chemistry, very interested in batteries. He's a self-described battery guy, not a car guy, but concerned about the environment, concerned about sustainability. Early in in life, he had taken a Porsche and ripped out the gasoline engine and put in a, a motor and batteries and made an electric vehicle and he went out and drag raced on the weekends to show what he could do and to test the batteries to figure out how to make them better. Almost like the early days of the personal computer in Silicon Valley, when you had the homebrew club and and the guys working on personal computers for the first time were really where you saw the idea for Apple computers come out of. And mm-hmm. this was very similar. So JB Straubel is in this kind of community, in this kind of ecosystem, experimenting he has an idea that runs parallel with Martin Eberhart. And uh, so he is one of the early early employees. Well it turns out JB's one of the few people who has any experience with batteries among the people they hire. Martin Comes from the world of personal electronics, but his previous startup had been an e-book. So basically, he hired the people he knew. And so J.B. Straubel was then the guy with the battery experience, and he hires a bunch of his friends from Stanford, and they st- set out to kind of figure out how to take lithium-ion batteries, the fat finger-sized batteries at the time, were made popular by camcorders and laptops, try to take them basically off the shelf wire a bunch of them together. They figured they need several thousand, put them in a box, the battery pack, and that was going to provide the power for the car. Well, it sounded simple, but it was way more complicated than they expected and nearly put the company under one of the first things that nearly put the company under, in fact, because these these cells, they're not always perfect. And if there's a defect, they might go into what we call thermal runaway. And that's where they get so hot that then they combust. They look like a firecracker going off. Well, mm-hmm. if you've got thousands of them tied together and one goes off, then you've got thousands of them going off. And the idea might be that they were going to be like bombs on wheels. And so they needed to figure this out. <laughs> JB does some tests and he realizes this could be pretty bad. Uh, they go seek help from a battery expert and the battery expert says, well, don't worry. Uh, only like one in a million of these cells is going to be defective. And then they start doing the math real quick. And well, one in a million, we're going to have like several thousand in a car. Uh, maybe this is going to be like one in a hundred, one in a thousand cars is going to just blow up on us. And, <laughs> and at that point, everything stopped on development of the car. And the, the this was an existential crisis. They needed to figure this out. And lo and behold, this is where the real innovation of early Tesla happens, is figuring out how to manage those battery cells to keep them the appropriate temperature. Uh, it's a mixture between mechanical engineering and software that was ahead of its time and is still uh, rather remarkable for the industry. And that, that's the key, one of the key breakthroughs that Tesla has in its early days.
0: Hmm. So the batteries and this incredible leap of Keeping them cool. I mean, it's a it's a stunning breakthrough, but then we get to Rawlinson the chief engineer for the Model S. Right. Tell us about his contribution to the company.
1: Elon has, as chairman, he has ideas about what he wants the Model S to be like, and so the car goes from supposed to being fifty thousand dollars to ultimately being around a hundred or one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. and Elon is just looking at it and he's pulling his his hair out. He's just so furious. He keeps complaining that all he's hearing about is, well, we can't do X or Y because it's too expensive. And a couple things happen. Uh, One is that he hears about Peter Rawlinson. Peter Rawlinson was a A car engineer out of the UK who had a very unique career path. He did not work at a Ford or a GM or a Volkswagen. He had worked at smaller companies where he had more opportunity to have a kind of a broader array of experiences, got into computer design engineering earlier on than many. He thought about new materials. He was just kind of out there on the side. And he and Elon just hit it off real quickly, both talked about kind of how the culture of how they could build the team to engineer the car special forces is something that elon always points to he wants a he doesn't want an army he wants a group of special forces to attack this would be cheaper um, in theory it could go faster and so peter gets in there and that's really what he he brings and uh, this was a key moment in the company that they get this team in place working on the model s and the model s comes out It was one of these things where they had designed it. They had shown a concept of what it was going to look like, but Peter Rawlinson had to put it together in a way the team got rid of most of the gauges, put a giant mm-hmm. flat screen uh, touchpad screen in the middle of the dashboard that could uh, handle many of the functions of the vehicle. In theory, they were going to have two small seats in the trunk for children. So they could call it a seven seater. And this was important because Elon had uh, five children at the time and he wanted to put all the kids in the car. And <laughs> it would be one of many examples, how Elon's personal life would influence the features of the vehicles being developed. Once that was shown and Peter starts working on it, they're off to the races at that point
0: all right we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and we'll be right back it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at Burrow.com ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at Burrow.com ACAST. Welcome back to the podcast. Tell us about Tesla's holy grail the holy grail being self-driving technology. Obviously, it's in the news now. There's a federal investigation into it.
1: Yeah, we get into 2016 that the system, it's called Autopilot, is deployed, and the team is starting to see some crashes that are worrying, that people are misusing the system. They're told that they need to keep their hands on the wheel and pay attention to the road, but the more you use the system, the more you think it can do things that it can't actually do. And right. people are keeping their hands off and getting into crashes. And in May 2016, a man named Joshua Brown died in a crash that was clear and the evidence would show was probably was not using the system appropriately. Right. And so there's a lot of attention on Tesla at that point. The valuation of the company publicly is in part because Of the belief that tesla is on the cusp of doing self-driving technology and the company was accustomed to that point of big hairy goals from elon either on twitter or events you know he would set these really seemingly impossible goals and then they would push and do it and be surprised there was concern that he would go out and do that again and lo and behold he does in the fall of 2016 Hmm. and it's at this point where people talk about how they felt like there was a change in the corporate culture that elon was finally going out and saying not something that they thought was impossible, something they knew was impossible. They knew the technology they were putting on the road was not capable of doing self-driving at that point. And in fact, we would see years later that the company would announce that they needed to put new computers into those cars because they couldn't handle self-driving at that point. The concern being that some people out there now think they have self-driving cars when in fact they don't. And we've continued to see the autopilot be used in ways that experts say is inappropriate and uh, a growing chorus of people that feel that Tesla needs to put greater safeguards in place to, to ensure that it's not used inappropriately.
0: Of course, there's also the stock market side of the story, where the price-earnings ratio of Tesla is in an otherworldly, almost galactical space. Tell us about the ride of the stock, the ups and downs, and how Tesla was able to convince investors that it was going to be worth trillions of dollars in the future, Well, they miss financial target after financial target.
1: The running challenge for Elon Musk and Tesla is this need for cash, cash to fuel the growth, cash to keep the lights on. And so in order to continually raise the money that the company needs to move forward on its plans, it has to build excitement from the investor community. Elon creates kind of a growth story. But in 2018, you really start to see this coming to a head. There had been growing sentiment among some investors that Elon had gotten uh, way over his skis, that his promise is just too grandiose, that perhaps they were borderline not true. And we saw a real rise in what we call short sellers, those investors who are betting against the company. They profit if Tesla's stock falls, uh, essentially doing the calculation that the company is overvalued and that eventually a comeuppance will come and then Mm -hmm. they will be able to profit from that. And so you see this battle playing out. Every time Tesla makes a misstep, it's amplified by an investor community who has a lot of incentive to make sure the market knows about it. Right. So this is playing out in 2018 in, in dramatic, dramatic fashion. The company is very close to being out of money. Elon has made statements that have drawn attention to the Department of Justice revolving around production capabilities for the Model 3. He's showing reluctance to go to the market to raise the money he needs because he would have to divulge that at the time. And also, because they were in such trouble, it was going to cost more. Elon's ability to keep control of the company, we come back to this idea of control, um, is largely because of he has to keep a certain percentage of shares. He doesn't have one of those super majorities like Google. So there's a lot going on here. He has motivation not to dilute the stock by issuing more shares, but also needs that money. See this this tension is building. And what what you see in 2018 is Elon starts to publicly kind of unravel in a way. He is engaging in battles on Twitter with short sellers. He feels they're out to get him. You see him getting into fights uh, with this random people. He accuses a cave rescuer involved in the Thai cave rescue of a children's soccer team of being a pedophile without any kind of evidence. His personal life is playing out in social media. It's really a, a very weird time for the company, and people are increasingly growing concerned about him. And then as the summer's coming to an end, he goes out and tweets that he has secured funding to take the company private. And this is rather remarkable because it would be the largest go-private deal in history. And as the details start to emerge, it's clear that he doesn't have the details lined up. He doesn't necessarily have the money. (laughs) And regulators consider this fraudulent and accuse him of misleading investors. Uh, There's the threat that he could be uh, stripped of being CEO of the company, banned from being a CEO of a public-traded company for life. This is a, a really bad time, and it it it's also at a point where the company is really low on cash. They've finally started making the Model Three, but now they've got to figure out how to actually sell it, and this is the challenge. And there's it creates this huge drama in the fall of of 2018, where they have to get a certain number of cars in people's hands just to collect the money to keep the company going. And meanwhile. He's having to fight the SEC to keep control of the company. And it all comes to a head at the end of the quarter where they get those cars delivered. They're able to keep the company afloat. And Elon, not just afloat, but a slight profit. And Elon is able to cut a deal with the SEC that allows him to remain as CEO. But he has to give up the title of chairman for several years. He has to pay a fine and he has to consent to having some of his social media messages vetted by a lawyer to prevent him from making some of those kinds of misstatements that gets him in trouble. Misstatements, right? <laughs>
0: All right, we're going to take another quick break to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Will others catch up with Tesla? Will, will Tesla have... Real competition in the space, or do they already have it? What What's your view of the future
1: of these vehicles? For years now, as Tesla's grown our profile, the industry keeps fixating on this idea of who's going to rise up to be the Tesla killer, and Mm -hmm. you know the idea of of a that General Motors or Volkswagen will come out with an electric vehicle that will just blow everybody away and finally show that the Model Three or the Model S was a weak competitor and it hasn't happened. And so the focus has been on the Tesla killer, but the real threat to Tesla is what I like to call the, the Tesla nibbler. There are going to be so many EV competitors in years to come that they're the idea of an electric vehicle is not going to be unique. They're not going to have this blame all to themselves to appeal to people who want an electric vehicle. You're going to have vehicles at every kind of price point and every style, every configuration. And that kind of competition will be intense in a way that Tesla is not accustomed to. And China will be one of those big markets that we see that, that fight. And really one of the things that's occurred is that the success of the Model 3, and the success of Tesla gives to am- ammunition to regulators from China to Europe who are concerned about air pollution and air quality and putting in place new requirements for zero emission vehicles. These governments are, are moving the industry towards the electrification of the automobile and they can point to tesla and say there's really no excuse look at they they are making profit off of these vehicles and people are buying them and they're excited to buy them and so competition is coming the benefits that tesla have or the opportunities they have are in that battery technology which we discuss they're just be ahead of everybody there but to where tesla's struggles and still hasn't figured out things or just the basics that the auto industry has been doing for a hundred years. And that's building and selling cars. They still struggle with executing on manufacturing. They still struggle with servicing this growing fleet. And so you have this race in some ways. For the traditional auto industry who has mastered manufacturing and sales and service, they know how to do that. Can they figure out how to do the electrification part? Or can Tesla figure out those basics in time to kind of fend off that competition, and that will be the question for Tesla in the next generation. Here is: do they become the world's largest automaker by sales and profit, or do they have painful changes for years to come? Elon Musk and Tesla won the day uh, today in defining what the future of the car is going to be, and that's the electrification of the automobile from GM to Mercedes to Volkswagen to many more. But we see these companies racing for the EV and the, the future, at least the dawn of the electric car has occurred.
0: I wanted to ask you one last question, which is when can I buy the pickup truck?
1: This is a good example of the challenges that are had. Execution, you know, clearly already signs that it's going to be delayed into next year. And that is going to be kind of the, the drama of things to come. It's Elon standard time. <laughs>
0: Well, Tim, thank you very, very much for joining us on the podcast. Listeners can buy Tim's book. It's called Power Play, Tesla, Elon Musk, and the Bet of the Century. Congratulations on the book, and thank you very much for joining us.
1: Well, thank you. That was a lot of fun.
0: Thanks for tuning into the News Items podcast. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre bien Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and our recording engineer is the great Billy Gardella. I'll be back tomorrow with my interview with Susanna Cahalan, author of the best-selling memoir, Brain on Fire, a book that sold over one million copies. We'll see you
1: then.